Well, brothers and sisters, I would invite you to open up in your Bibles this morning to Galatians chapter 3, and as you were doing so, to stand for the reading of God's holy word. Galatians chapter 3, and I'm going to read in your hearing just the first five verses this morning. The first five verses of Galatians chapter 3. This is the word of the Lord. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Brothers and sisters, please find your seats. As many of you know, the, the five solas of the Protestant Reformation... Justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as revealed in Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. These solas, as we call them, they are both life-giving and life-grounding. Let me explain. Life-giving because they clearly summarize the teaching of Scripture with respect to justification. That is to say, how you and I can be accepted in God's sight. How we can be made right before God. But these same souls are also life-grounding. I say that because in a world of shifting sand, where our faith is often fickle, our lives don't match our lips, and our own hearts routinely condemn us. Brothers and sisters, to know that we stand right in God's sight solely on account of who Christ is and what He has done, to know that, to be convinced of that, well, brothers and sisters, that is to have concrete under your shoes. A redeeming grace, as much as we confess the five solas of the Reformation, So often, we are prone, are we not, to invent a sixth sola. What is that sixth sola, you ask? You've heard me say it before, I think. Sola bootstrapa. That is to say, as Christians, we are ever tempted to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. And rather than rest in Christ and His grace, we are so prone, we we so gravitate towards that religious, that spiritual treadmill, And we actually think that by hopping on that thing and sweating a lot, that somehow God will look at our sweat and He will be pleased with us. But Christian, not only does such an attitude result in either pride or despair, but it also at the very same time does great violence 
to the truth of the gospel. I say it does great violence because as you and I hop on our spiritual treadmill, what we are doing is robbing Christ of the glory that is due his name. I would invite you to look back at the end of Galatians 2, that passage that we looked at last week. Verse 21, if righteousness were through the law, then verse 21, Christ died for no purpose. So Christian, if you can through you, through your works, your deeds, your activities, your discipline, your so-called law-keeping, if you can do it, if you can merit righteousness for yourself by hopping on that spiritual treadmill, if you can do it, then what does Scripture say? Christ died for no purpose. In other words, if you can do it yourself, then there is no need for Christ. His death was utterly in vain. Turns out, Christ doesn't need to save you at all. All Christ needs to do is give you a pep talk so that you will pull yourself up by your bootstrap, go out tomorrow morning, hit it hard, and earn your way into heaven. Perhaps you can see then why Paul is so agitated here in Galatians 3. Without pulling any punches, he speaks directly to these churches here in Galatia, and he addresses their tendency to rely upon themselves. And he does so in some pretty striking ways. For example, he says in verse 1, O foolish Galatians. Paul laments at how foolish they are. And perhaps it goes without saying, but that is not a compliment. Paul's head hurts and his heart aches as he gets news that these churches, they are beginning to drift. They're drawn away from Christ. And so he asks them, what's what's wrong with you? How can you be so slow? How can you be so dense? How can you be so foolish? J.B. Phillips's little paraphrase captures it in a rather provocative way. Forgive me if you have little ones. He translates it this way. Oh, you dear idiots of Galatia. Surely you can't be so idiotic. I think that really gets to the thrust of it. But let's be clear, this foolishness, or to use the language of Phillips again, this idiocy, this is not, I repeat, not the result of a mental deficiency. It's not like the Christians here in Galatia had some learning disabilities. No, this is a foolishness that extends far beyond their heads all the way down into their hearts. Meaning that this foolishness is a moral foolishness. In an effort to exalt themselves, they have debased Christ. And what is the epitome of foolishness, church? I will tell you. The epitome of foolishness is to think that you can, by your own effort, in any way contribute to your salvation. That is utter foolishness. Which is why Paul says in the same passage, That's why he asks in verse 1, Who has bewitched you? 
We don't use that language very often today. We, we might say something today like, who tricked you? Who pulled the wool over your eyes? How is it, church, that you at one point warmly received the message of Christ crucified for you and that by Christ and by Christ alone you can stand right in God's sight? How is it that you once warmly received that message but now you're all running around like you've been hypnotized? It's like some sorcerer has put a spell on you. Some magician has duped you. And now, Paul laments, you are unable to see that Christ is enough. Again, this is the height of foolishness. Well, church, that is the spell that these churches in Galatia were under. The question before us then is, well, how is this spell broken? And the answer is as clear as it is simple. You must look to Christ. And you must look to Christ alone. You must see Christ crucified for you. And you must trust that Christ crucified for you is enough not just to pardon your sins, but to fit you for the righteousness that you need to stand before God. You see, Christ is the smell salts to our spiritual unconsciousness. Christ is the remedy to our terminal disease. Christ is the balm to our wounded souls. Christ is the alarm clock to our spiritual stupor. So that, looking to Him then, that is the only way that this hypnotic trance will be broken. It does not happen, I repeat, it does not happen by looking in the mirror, but instead by forever fixing your gaze on the Son of God, Galatians 2.20, who loved you and gave Himself for you. See, this whole thing has Paul astonished. He, he pleads with the Galatians in the middle of verse 1. He says, It was before your eyes that Jesus, that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Paul's saying, You saw Christ. You saw His redeeming blood pour forth from His side. You saw Him who knew no sin be made sin for you. You were there when Christ was cursed of God. You witnessed His death on your behalf. You saw with your own two eyes the Lamb and how He was slain to save sinners. His sacrifice to pardon Paul is saying it wasn't done in some secluded corner, hidden away somewhere under the cover of darkness. No, Christ was crucified publicly. It was done in plain sight. And you Galatians, you saw it. But of course, not literally, right? 
The Galatians were not literally in Jerusalem as Christ was fixed to that tree. They could not literally hear, smell, feel the events of that dark afternoon. Let's be, let's be very clear. Their cornea didn't process the image of Christ being lifted up between heaven and earth on that cursed cross. They did not literally see Christ crucified. Well, then what on earth is Paul going on about here? Well, brothers and sisters, they saw Christ crucified for them through preaching. Just as you and I do each and every Lord's Day, catch this, they saw Him with their ears. As the Word was read and preached, the Holy Spirit was faithful to open their hearts and their minds so that they would see and savor Jesus Christ. That's what preaching is. Preaching is not a 20-minute spiritual pep talk. Preaching is not religious sloganeer bumper sticker things. Preaching is Christ brought to the heart through the eye of the ear. And the same is true for us today. This is why, incidentally enough, the Reformed tradition has, from the very beginning, put front and center the preaching of God's Word. This is why you will look in vain for images and skits and pottery class and other showy things. This is why we don't put an emphasis upon smells and bells. We see Christ, biblically speaking, not by watching movies like Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ. We see Christ not by watching TV shows like Dallas Jenkins' The Chosen. These are cheap supplements at best. And the reason this is the case is because Christ has given to us His Word. And His Word is more than sufficient, not just to give you life lessons, not just so that you would be a good person, but God's Word is sufficient so that you would see Christ. So that you would see Christ given for you. And in the event that you and I really want something visual, in the event that we crave something more than the Word written and the Word preached, well, Christ has condescended to us, hasn't He? And He has given to us water and wine. He's given to us a bath and bread. That is to say, the church has been entrusted with the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And those are the only visual aids that Christ has seen fit to give us of Him and the Gospel. And it is through baptism and the Lord's Supper that Christ meets our needs, that He satisfies our hearts, and that He strengthens our faith. And so the point that Paul is making here to the Galatians is this. 
as Paul proclaimed Christ crucified, they saw Christ crucified. They saw Christ placarded upon that cross. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, through the foolishness of preaching, it was as if Christ was put up on a billboard for them all to see. But the false teachers who were plaguing the churches, they came to this billboard and they came with spray paint in hand. They came and they graffitied that billboard. They obscured Christ so that the cross was no longer central. The fact that Christ died to pardon sinners like you and I and to gift us His very own righteousness so that we would not just be forgiven of our sins, but so that we would actually be able to stand before God? Well, that glorious truth was concealed. All you could see was graffiti. Graffiti like, you must be circumcised. Graffiti like, well, you need to make sure that you keep this old covenant ceremony. Graffiti like, well, you probably shouldn't eat this food. You should only eat this kind of food on Tuesdays. And then on Fridays, stay away from this. It's you, you, you. Do, do, do. This is ugly focus. This ugly focus upon you and do that provokes the apostle to ask a series of questions. Four, to be exact. And I hope what you're going to see is that these four questions, they put the truth of the gospel front and center, which is right where it belongs. You find the first probing question in verse 2. Paul asks, Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now, to be clear, the mention of the Spirit here is more than significant. And I realize that in a circle like this, where we repudiate the charismatic movement and all that they do, we, we might hear mention of, did you receive the Spirit? And our, our hackles might go up and our radar might come on. Take a break for a second. That's not what's going on here. You see, in the Old Testament, many promises were made about Christ and about the New Covenant. And one of those promises was that the people of God would receive the Spirit. Remember, the Spirit was a gift that was reserved for a select few in the Old Covenant. But in the New Covenant, the promise is that all of God's people would receive the Spirit. The prophet Ezekiel puts it this way, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So the fullness of the Spirit was promised in a unique and full way to the new covenant community. Unless we truncate this whole thing, 
The reception of the Holy Spirit in the Scriptures is synonymous with being redeemed. Or or we might say today, being saved. In other words, a Christian is redeemed when the Holy Spirit regenerates them and they believe the good news of the gospel of Christ crucified. When God does that work, that person is just in God's sight. All their sin is forgiven. All of Christ's righteousness is credited to them. And God gifts them the Holy Spirit to indwell them and to guide them and to empower them. So with that in mind, return to Paul's first question. When Paul asks, did you receive the red light? Oh, I warned you. When I say something, you better believe me. So, (laughs) reset. So, with all of this in mind, with this idea of, oh, man, I can't, this is going to be difficult. I am am anchored to this thing. (laughs) So, when it comes to the promise of the new covenant... And it comes to the promise of the Holy Spirit. You have to have that in mind when you go back to Paul's question in verse 2. He asks, did you receive the Spirit? What he's saying is, when you were saved, when you were declared just, when you received the Holy Spirit, the question is, did that happen, verse 2, by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And, of course, there's only one way that you can answer that question, right? It was obviously by faith. So faith, not works, is how one receives the Holy Spirit. To say the same thing differently, believing, not doing, has and always will be the pathway to the Holy Spirit. To which I trust you say, fair enough. And I imagine the Galatians would wholeheartedly agree. When it comes to the beginning of the Christian life, it starts with faith. But what about the end? What about the middle? And and what about a little bit later today and tomorrow and next week? What then? Well, enter Paul's second question, which is found in verse 3. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? So so you have to remember, the false teachers were sowing seeds of discord. They were saying something like, yes, that is true, it's right, that you start the Christian life by faith. That's true. That's how you get out of the blocks. But then you are going to need more than faith in Christ. 
They would say something like, you're, you're going to need to be circumcised. You're going to need to keep these dietary rules. You're going to need to maintain, keep up some external, personal level of holiness. In other words, you start by faith, that's true, but you keep it going by law-keeping, by your obedience to the Old Covenant, by you. But notice that Paul will have none of it. He will have none of it. And the reason he will have none of it is because of this. If you hear nothing else this morning, hear this. Just as the law is powerless to save, so, brothers and sisters, the law is powerless to sanctify. What makes you think, even for a moment, Christian, that you will somehow, by your own efforts, by your own performance, by your own works, by your own deeds, by your own activities, what makes you think for a moment that you will be perfected by you? You see, what the Galatians had forgotten and what so many of us forget is that our perfection is found in Christ. Christ is our perfection. Which means our confession should ever be Jesus is both the founder and, Hebrews 12, 2, the perfecter of our faith. And foolishness, according to verse 3, is thinking otherwise. The foolish one, the one who has been bewitched, he thinks, sure, this whole thing, it gets going by grace. But I will be made mature, I will be made complete, I will be made righteous by my flesh. And, and by the flesh, what scripture means here is by my own self-doing, by my own self-effort, by my own ability to check boxes, I will be made right. And that, brothers and sisters, is a recipe for disaster. You did not begin the Christian life by your flesh, and neither will you complete the Christian life by your flesh. From A to Z, it is all of grace. From beginning to end, the Christian life is about trusting Christ. Trusting that Christ is sufficient for you. That brings us to our third question. It's found in verse 4. We hear, did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Paul's saying, you guys have suffered for your commitment to Christ. You've been ridiculed. You've been ostracized. In some cases, you've even been persecuted. This is what you have gone through. This is what you have endured. And lying underneath of it. Lying underneath of the suffering is a question of cause. It's a question of reason. Why did you suffer? Why were you exposed to this sort of treatment? And the answer is very clear. The Galatians were suffering for their commitment to Christ and Christ alone. And Paul is asking, well, was it all a waste? Was it all for nothing? Were you once willing to suffer for your allegiance to the Savior? 
You, you once were willing to do that, but now you seem infatuated with Moses and his law. Circumcision, not the cross, is on your mind. You, you are way too concerned with your own life and not Christ's death. What happened? What happened to you? Was all of your suffering for nothing? Was it just a season? Was it just a fad? Was it just some emotional kick that you were on? What changed in your thinking where you once staked your whole life upon Christ, but now Christ is no longer enough? It brings us to the fourth and final question. It's found in verse 5. We read, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so, and here you'll see the same language of the first question, by works of the law or by hearing with faith? You see, the Galatians had tasted and seen how good God is. The Holy Spirit had, had brought about new life. They had apparently uh, experienced miraculous works in their midst. The, the Spirit's fruit was all together evident. We know this from the book of Acts. We know that in this particular region where these churches were planted, that there was those who were sick that were healed. There were demons who were cast out. God had done something very unique and so Paul asked the question, did you experience all of this? Were you on the receiving end of all of this because of your works of the law? Verse 5, or by hearing with faith? Then, brothers and sisters, I trust you know the answer. So with those four questions in your mind, zoom out. Zoom out because I want you to look at these four rhetorical questions that Paul asks this congregation to reflect on. And as you zoom out, here's what I want you to see. They were converted by faith. They grew through faith. They were willing to suffer on account of faith. And the miracles of God they witnessed were owing to or if I can turn the screw and be a bit more argumentative, what, what Paul is trying to get them to see is that none of the gifts that God poured out upon them, none of them, not even a single one, was the result of their so-called law-keeping. That's the point that's being made in Galatians 3. All of God's redemptive work on their behalf, every single syllable came apart from their commitment to Moses and his law. It wasn't their circumcision that flipped the switch. It wasn't their stiff-arming of pork or seafood that somehow pulled the lever. The point that Paul is making is that it had nothing to do with them at all. The whole kitten caboodle. And by that we mean forgiveness and justification and the spirit and hope and assurance and joy and sanctification and eternal life. All of it. The whole ocean of God's gospel, it washes up and over their souls by grace and grace alone. 
That is what Paul wants them and wants us to see. It's not by works of the law, but by hearing with faith. But let's be real. While this is perhaps easy enough to understand intellectually, it is often at this point where many Christians stumble spiritually. Here's what I mean. We are convinced by Scripture that the beginning of the Christian life is purely the result of God's grace. God's grace given in Christ and received by faith and by faith alone. That much at least makes sense to us. So so we start the Christian life, and when we do, when it comes to our eyes and when it comes to our hands, we begin with our eyes fixed on Christ, and we come with our hands being empty. But so quickly our eyes wander and our hands get full. What I mean is we, we begin to look in the mirror rather than upon our Savior. And no longer do we come with hands empty, eager eager to receive all that God is for us in Christ. Now we, sometimes subtly, sometimes not so subtly, we lift up our resume to him. We, We vex ourselves with questions, have I read my Bible enough? How many hours did I pray today? Do I have enough faith? Am I experiencing unparalleled heights of joy? Are any of us? Have I conquered enough sin in my life? Have I really done enough? Have I volunteered enough? Have I worked enough? Have I given enough of my free time to serve Jesus? Am I living Radical enough? Have I rooted through each and every dark crevice in my heart and eradicated all the sin that resides there? Notice, in all of this, we have become the focus. This, I think, is why, and and bear with me, I'm just going to call balls and strikes. This is one of the reasons I think the evangelical church is awash in books and podcasts and conferences. And all of them are promising to you and I the key to the Christian life. I can't tell you how many of these mailers I get both here and at home that are promising this is the ticket. This is the key that will turn the lock. It is found, we are told, in five easy steps or three hidden truths, or seven revolutionary principles. You know what? It doesn't take long to see that whether we're talking about these steps, or these truths, or these principles, you know what they all have in common? It's all something I got to do. It's all about me. And so to all of it, we must respond, and not with a whisper, but a shout, get Behind me, Satan. Our confession is Christ is enough. And Christ is enough not just to get this whole thing started for us, but Christ is enough to actually finish what he starts. 
Philip Graham Ryken, a Presbyterian minister, he puts it correctly this way. The Christian life finishes exactly the way it starts. By that he means it commences with faith, continues by faith, and will be completed through faith. And I'll tell you personally that I have become increasingly convinced that this is why so many Christians are absolutely miserable. I talk to Christians, and they are robbed of assurance. They lack joy, and they have very little hope or effectiveness in the Christian life. And when I probe a little bit, you know what I discover? It is because rather than resting in Christ... And the sufficiency that Christ is for them, so many Christians are squirming in a lukewarm stew of their own good works. And that stew stinks, and they know it. That's why they are miserable. And one of the telltale signs of this is that you will find so many Christians, and they relate to God not as father, but as judge. You will see this tendency in Christians where Christ is less their savior and more their king. You'll see the spirit of God is treated as if he is to be a carrot dangled out in front of us. When the scriptures tell us that the spirit of God is the down payment of our inheritance, gifted to us in the grace of the gospel. You see, I think the reason that so many Christians live miserable and ineffective lives is they wake up each day thinking that they will, end of verse 3, be perfected by the flesh. Christ gave them a good push. Christ got them started. But now they have to pedal and pedal and pedal. And it's uphill a lot of the ways. So many times the Christian life is measured or evaluated or lived, and this is true whether we say it or not, by our own doing, by our own obedience, by our own progress, by our own so-called law-keeping, by our own diligence. But dear Christian, you who are a weak and weary and worried saint, please hear me. The whole of the Christian life is rooted in and tethered to Jesus Christ, given for sinners like us. It's not about us. It's not about our doing. It's about Christ and what Christ has already done. Think of someone running a marathon. Too many Christians view Christ as the one running the race for us, doing the work, keeping God's law, meriting righteousness for us. So far, so good. But then it always happens this way. On the very last lap, what does Christ do? For some reason, he hands the baton off to us. And now it's up to us. To run hard and to not stumble and don't trip and don't muck it up and get it done and make it happen. And it's true, Christ has got you a really big lead and you are way out in first place. 
But it's equally true that you are starting to lag behind. So you better pick up the pace and get to work and don't blow the lead Christ gave you. If that is you, Christian, I would repeat Paul's sacred words to you. And by doing so, I mean no ill will. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Do you really think, Christian, that you are the one that's going to make all of this happen? If so, and again, I don't mean to be unnecessarily rude, but why are you so foolish? The only way that you will ever cross that finish line in first place is if Christ picks you up, throws you over his shoulder, and runs that entire race beginning to end for you. And you know what? That is exactly what Christ has done. He's done it all for you. This whole thing reminds me of Martin Luther, that honorary German monk. He died February 18th. 1564. Just three days earlier, Luther preached what would come to be his final sermon. And in it, he, as an honorary German, chided the people of God. And he chided them three days before his death because the congregation to whom he had preached had grown weary of hearing that gospel preached. They had grown tired of simply hearing of Christ crucified for them. Instead, their hearts were drawn away from the ordinary means of grace, and they were enraptured with anything and everything other than the simplicity of Christ crucified to pardon guilty sinners. And so in Luther's day to that congregation, he spoke of those who would travel far and wide, If only they could pay a small fee and see Joseph's britches or Mary's blouse or a piece of wood from the cross upon which Christ died. They sought relics, they purchased indulgences, and they hoped to gain a measure of grace and acceptance and assurance through, to use Luther's colorful language, the Pope's second-hand junk. Now, redeeming grace, before you and I shake our heads, can we at least acknowledge that too many of us do the same thing today? It looks a little bit different, but you'd better believe that we have our meccas, we have our indulgences. The attitude remains the same. How many mission trips have you been on? Oh, not that many, huh? Did you attend that youth retreat last weekend? That band slayed, man. It was so cool. I've never felt so close to Jesus. Have you ever visited Israel? When you were there, did you get baptized in the Jordan River? In a vain effort to draw near to Christ? We will ditch the local church and the ordinary means of grace. We will profane the Lord's day all by participating, oddly enough, in a so-called walk with Christ. 
will move heaven and earth to attend the latest evangelical mega-conference. We'll make our pilgrimages to evangelical Mecca. Think T4G, the Gospel Coalition, Shepherd's Conference, G3. All why? So that we can get our next spiritual high. Speaking of which, I heard about a retreat that's coming up. It's up in this ranch in the mountains where you can really connect with God. I hope you don't miss it. And don't misunderstand me. Not all of that stuff is bad. It's not what I'm saying. But what I am leaning into is an evangelical culture that has, to use Paul's language from verse 3, become foolish. Not content with Christ's utter and complete sufficiency for us, our eyes begin to wander, and with our eyes, so our faith follows suit. You see, beware, Christian. Even good religious practices can become a pothole for the Christian life. I say that because all of our religious practices, all of our piety, all of our devotion, it is intended to be a means to an end, and the end is Jesus Christ. But the moment that you or I begin to look to those practices as if we have spiritual notches in our belts, the moment we look to those spiritual practices as if we have attained or we have somehow gained a measure of standing before God, well, that, my friends, is when we have zigged when we were supposed to have zagged. The single question is this, is Christ enough? Has Christ done what is needed to be done so that you can stand before God right in His sight? If the answer is yes, and it is, then we ought to rest in Him and Him alone. Not our activities, not our accomplishments, In a lot of ways, we need to remember that that's exactly what faith is. Faith, biblically speaking, is you and I looking away from ourselves and fixing our eyes, both of them, on the Savior. Faith is never you or I relying upon us, whether it be our works or our emotions or our experience or our anything. Faith is relying entirely upon Christ. Because Christ was crucified for you. And the point that's being made here in Galatians 3 is this. This faith, this you and I laying hold of Christ by grace alone, it is to be the heart of the Christian life. And by the heart of the Christian life, I mean the pumping blood throughout the entire body, keeping us alive and keeping us healthy. You see, redeeming grace, this is the gospel. Christ has done for you what you could never do for yourself. And there was a time when that was good news to our ears. There was a time when that wasn't just good news, but great news. Life-giving news. And may it be once again. This is good news for all. Especially for the damned, the doubtful, the distracted, and the discouraged. Let me very quickly flesh that out. For those who can hear my voice that are in rebellion to God, to the damned, you too can be saved. Christ has come, and Christ has come to shed his blood, to pay the penalty that you owed for your sin. 
But my friend, this doesn't happen sort of automatically. You must first confess your sins. You must first acknowledge that you are a sinner who is in need of saving. So do that today. Acknowledge your sin. Turn from it and come to Christ. Come to Christ that you would have life. And there's only one way that you come to Christ. You have to tear up your resume. You have to cease trying yourself and cease trusting in yourself. And you must fall before Christ and his cross. But know this. God has promised that he will save all those who come to Christ in faith. You who are doubtful, this gospel is also good news for you. Hear me well. The redemption of your soul, it hangs not upon your flimsy, fickle, and fleeting faith. Instead, your redemption rests on the rock-solid reality of Christ's life, death, burial, and resurrection for you. To say it another way, it is not the perfection of your faith that saves you, but it is the perfection of your Savior. Strong faith in a wrong Savior damns. Even if you have a weak faith in the right Savior, that is what God desires. So to you who doubt, you who struggle to grasp how God could love such a wretch like you, well, brother or sister, look to Christ once more. Look to Christ once more because you will not find faith or assurance or rest or anything that you desire by looking to anyone or anything other than Christ. You see, Christ is the gravity that keeps your feet firmly planted, lest you float off into space and perish. Christ's gospel is also good news for the distracted. By the distracted, I mean uh, those whose eyes are prone to wander. You who are always looking around for the next thing. You, you might hop churches every few years, chasing fads and giving yourself to trends. But dear brother or sister, such things will not ultimately satisfy your soul. In fact, there is only one who truly can. So give up all that glitters and rest your weary soul in the bosom of your faithful Savior. Finally, this is good news for the discouraged as well. Let me ask you, are you a wretch? Well, I hate to be that guy, but yeah, you are. Do you continue to stumble and, and fall into sin? Yes, I know that you do, and I know that you do because we all do. Will you always stand in need of God's grace? Only forever. Only forever. And you know what? This is true of each and every one of us. The truth is, you are a sinner. And if you are hearing that for the first time, I apologize, but welcome to the club. Thankfully, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So if you are discouraged... You must preach this to yourself often. There is no such thing as a performance-based Christianity. The same Christ who saved you is saving you and will continue to save you. 
and he has and is and will do, please hear me, not on account of your great achievements or accomplishments, but on account of his great love for sinners. No amount of law-keeping, no amount of religious zeal, no amount of rigorous devotion will somehow tip those scales. You cannot add on to or build upon Christ's works. It is done. It is finished. He has done it all for you. Imagine, if you can, for a moment, having a basketball signed by Michael Jordan or LeBron James, if you're younger than me. This would be pretty valuable, would it not? Imagine taking a Sharpie now to that same basketball and attempting to retrace Michael Jordan's signature. Let me ask you, will that endeavor add to the value of that ball? Of course not. It will only destroy it. Likewise, you and I cannot improve upon Christ's finished work for us. All we can do is receive it and rest in it and rely upon it. In conclusion, imagine for a moment we were to receive a letter from the apostle. Would it read this way? Oh, foolish redeeming grace, who has bewitched you? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? May it never be. Fix your eyes upon Christ. Take your eyes off of you and put them on your Savior. That is where they belong. Our Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for a Savior who actually saves. And we thank you for a Savior who came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. We thank you that those who are well have no need of a physician, but we are all sick. In fact, we are all dead, and we are in need of the physician. And we thank you that we have him, that you have given him to us, that even this morning through the proclamation of your word, we know that your spirit brings Christ near to our hearts. May we be strengthened and encouraged as you minister to us. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.